Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll learn about health concerns in daycare, preschool, and elementary school settings. Children should stay home from school if they have a fever over 100.4, and they need to stay home for 24 hours of fever-free time. Plus, a medical expert's view on the changing face of medicine today. I knew how to read the crowd, I knew how to make the jokes, and that has helped me then to do what I do now, just educate, entertain, kind of spread the word about what we're calling Health 3.0. And a foolproof way to calculate your portion sizes. I love visual cues. I always use your hand. Your hand's always with you, and it's relative to your size. So a woman's fist, I always tell, is probably about a cup. We'll have all that and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. On this week's show, we'll visit with an expert who offers insight into the changing face of medicine. Plus, we'll get a foolproof way to calculate your food portion sizes. But first, what parents need to know about keeping your children healthy in school. Well, with the start of the school year and their children either starting school for the first time or returning to school, many parents are concerned about the communicable diseases that their children may get exposed to in school. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Jacqueline Siskind. She's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital and at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming in, Dr. Siskind. Thank you for having me. So school or daycare centers, I guess they're places where children can be exposed to what we call communicable diseases, which are things that are catching, I guess. Tell us about that. Absolutely. You know, situations where kids are close to each other, uh, sharing the same air, sharing the same toys, um, eating near each other, putting things in each other's mouths, is a place where diseases can absolutely get spread. And I'm glad you had me here to talk about it because there's some things we can do to prevent kids from getting sick during the year. So, on average, uh, I read some statistic that most kids in school settings can get as many as 8 to 12 colds a year, and that's viral, obviously, viral colds. Yes, that's true. What are the kinds of things, are you, what are the kinds, the main kinds of disease entities that you're seeing with school age or even preschool kids? Sure. So what you said about kids getting 8 to 12 colds a year is absolutely right. And for the most part, especially in Syracuse, we tend to see those concentrated between September and March. And when you think about it, if a cold can last about a week and you're going to get 8 to 10 in that time period, for some parents it seems like one long cold. They get one, child gets better for a week, it's back again. It could just be like, oh, my kid is sick all winter long. And that number actually goes up if kids are exposed to cigarette smoke in the home too, so they can have even more than that. Um, So some families feel like it just goes on forever. Other things that we see aside from colds in daycare and in elementary schools is stomach viruses, um, especially in the winter months, and also uh, head lice can go around in schools too. So you think when you see stomach viruses, things like diarrhea, for example, those kinds of gastroenterologists, gastrointestinal problems, that kind of thing. Yeah, diarrhea and vomiting. Uh, A lot of parents 
would refer to this as a 24 or 48-hour kind of stomach bug, um, sometimes a low-grade fever with that, too. You know, one of the very biggest controversies or concerns out there these days has a lot to do with the use of antibiotics. And I think that many parents, when they see their child with a fever, runny nose, um, just, you know, out of sorts, immediately think, oh, I've got to get antibiotics for my child. Why don't you give us kind of what the current thinking today is about this whole idea of viral and you know viral colds like we mentioned and this idea of bacterial infections. Antibiotics when used appropriately in the right situations are fantastic medications that can help get kids healthy and save lives. A lot of times though antibiotics are not needed as you said in a viral situation. Antibiotics kill bacteria not viruses and so if your child has a viral cold or a viral stomach bug an antibiotic will probably only make them more miserable by giving them diarrhea, having them spit out a foul-tasting medication, and not making them better any faster. When kids have a viral illness, really the best thing to do is have them rest, give them lots of fluids, um, healthy, nutritious foods, and encourage them to blow their nose or you know eat bland foods until their stomach's feeling better to help the body fight it on its own. And when you say treat it symptomatically, if they're running a high fever, things like Tylenol or baby Motrin or those kinds of things yeah. are the ways you treat it symptomatically. Exactly. Kids over six months old can have Motrin. Um, kids under six months should have Tylenol. And certainly any baby that's under eight weeks old that has a high fever, um, a parent should call their doctor before giving Tylenol. So bottom line is, do pediatricians at this point in time have a definitive way to determine whether their disease, the child's disease is viral versus bacterial? And how is that done? Yeah, I think certainly if your child has had a, a fever for more than two days, if they're really not acting well, um, if you're concerned there's something else going on, you should bring them to the pediatrician. That's why we're there. And we love to see kids in the office. That's why we went into what we went into. So many times parents come in and they apologize to me. Oh, I'm so sorry I brought them in. I just wanted to check. And I always laugh because that's my job. If parents didn't bring their kids in just to check, I would be sitting alone in my office. So <laughs> we are there for a reason. Um, there isn't always a hard and fast rule of is this bacterial or not unless someone were to do a culture. Um, a lot of times a younger child you know, who has an ear infection, if you look in the ears, um, full of pus and it's bulging, you know that that child is going to need an antibiotic, particularly one that's under two years old. Um, a child that has a, a bad skin infection or a child that has pneumonia needs an antibiotic for sure. So you mentioned, and also I just want to say the other important thing here is obviously the concern these days is that we don't want that there's this development potential of um, the superbugs, things that are becoming resistant to antibiotics. So we really don't want to overuse antibiotics or use them inappropriately for exactly. that reason. Because then the bugs kind of become immune to the yeah, antibiotics. they get smart. You know, if um, you take an antibiotic when it's not necessary, it's possible to create new bacteria that's smarter that won't react to an antibiotic when it's really needed. But even more than that, I think if someone comes in with a viral illness, they are given an antibiotic for some reason. It doesn't work because they didn't have a bacterial infection. And then the next time a child is sick and really perhaps needs an antibiotic, a parent will say, oh, that antibiotic doesn't work for my child. When the truth is it didn't work the first time because it wasn't the right treatment the first time. I think time. that's a very key point. Um, you mentioned things like lice, for example. Obviously, there are treatments for that. And is it important to isolate a child if they've been um, you know, found to have lice? I, well, I don't think they have to go, you know, wrap their head in a bubble and 
banished from society. But certainly if a child has head lice, it's important to uh, check the other children in the classroom, which usually a school nurse will do. Um, if you have other children in your home, those siblings should be checked, and any adult in the house should be checked as well. Head lice is not uh, a danger to someone's health, but it is a nuisance, and it's the type of thing that won't go away unless it's completely treated. Um, in addition to using the medicated shampoos and combing through with a fine comb to get all the little eggs or nits out, you also have to make sure that you're treating hats, pillowcases, stuffed animals, jackets with a hood, it can anything be a nightmare. that's touched the child's head. Absolutely. It can be a nightmare. I, I think I've certain, many parents have gone through it. <laughs> yeah. It's horrifying at first, but then you kind of just kind of roll up your sleeves and, and deal with it. Yeah. How about things like whooping cough? I know there's been a resurgence in various parts of the country over the last couple of years, something that we thought had been kind of gone away. And tell us a little bit about that in terms of treatment, but also why has it come back? I'm really glad you bring that up. Whooping cough is uh, called the 100-day cough. When you get whooping cough, you are going to be coughing for months. There's a medication that's given if someone's diagnosed with whooping cough, and that will help them so that they don't spread the disease around, but it will not help them stop coughing. So if your child gets whooping cough, it's going to be a very difficult few months for you and your family. Whooping cough vaccine is given uh, when children are very young, two months, four months, six months. We booster it at 15 months and at four years old. And again, as kids enter middle school, the reason we have to booster it so often is it's an immunity that wanes over time. It wears off. Um, for a long time, older kids and adults in particular were not getting whooping cough boosters. And so they were carrying and then spreading it to younger kids, particularly babies that hadn't been vaccinated yet. And whooping cough can be very dangerous. If uh, your child is tested for whooping cough, they're going to be asked to stay home from school until the answer comes back that they're negative. If they're positive, they need to be treated for five days with the antibiotic before they go back to school. If you're just joining us or listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatrician Dr. Jacqueline Siskind. We're talking about preventing the spread of communicable diseases in childcare and school settings. Well, let me go back to that, but why has there been a resurgence? I think this is a key point. Yeah. If you are vaccinating, what's gone wrong here? I think part of the problem is that some parents now are refusing vaccines for their children. Um, part of the issue a few years ago is that adults weren't keeping up on their vaccines. Both pediatricians and obstetrician gynecologists have done a fantastic job of getting parents immunized, especially during pregnancies, women and their partners. So that's been helping. But a lot of parents now, in surprising numbers, are choosing not to vaccinate their children or to do it on an alternative schedule. And delaying vaccines can put you at risk for some of these communicable diseases, whooping cough being one of them. And also, doesn't it affect what we call the herd immunity? In other words, by having everyone vaccinated, the chances of the disease outbreak is much less. When you have spotty immune, uh, vaccination, you have the potential for the disease to pop up here and there and then kind of get started again. Yes. There are some people that cannot be vaccinated for certain reasons, either very specific health problems or because they're too young for certain vaccines. Many children aren't vaccinated until they're six to eight weeks old, and so before then they're a vulnerable population. When a parent chooses not to immunize their child, it's not a choice they're making just for their child. It's a choice they're making for everybody. I think that's a really key point. So along that line, when should children be kept at home? 
not sent to school. Children should stay home from school if they have a fever over 100.4, and they need to stay home for 24 hours of fever-free time. That doesn't mean their fever went away with Tylenol and then it came back. You start the clock when they are fever-free without medication, and they stay home for 24 hours. They should also stay home if they have vomiting or diarrhea, and some daycares have policies about staying home if they have very thick crusty nasal congestion um, or a very bad cough. So what principles or standards do daycare slash public schools use to protect children? In other words, what policies are in place to make sure that we minimize the spread of these communicable diseases. In elementary schools, if a child goes to the nurse's office uh, for vomiting, for fever, for head lice, uh, a parent is called and they're sent home. In a situation where a parent can't pick them up, the school has policies to keep that child in the nurse's office until some responsible adult can come. Uh, daycares also have policies when it comes to diaper changing and hand washing. Uh, they use gloves for diaper changes, washing hands before and after preparing food for children, and policies also of when to keep children home to prevent spread. So do you, is there some way for a parent to assess, especially in daycare, private, you know, places, how effective or how, you know, what kind of programs they have in place to maintain um, all of these policies, for example? I think that a parent considering sending their child to a daycare or a, a private facility in someone's home should always go and tour that place ask what the policies are about children staying home, look around, do you see gloves near the diaper change area? Do you see children who appear healthy or is there a kid who's sick in the corner who you think, oh, that child shouldn't be here? Um, and specifically ask what your policies are. It's also okay to ask, have you had any incidents recently of an outbreak in this daycare? I think that's a key point. Um, this is a question I've been dying to ask for a long time. You know, there's been all of this talk about the hand sanitizers. Hand sanitizers seem to be like kind of the, you know, the, the golden ticket or the magic bullet for certainly for hospitals, for cruise lines, whatever. Do they do a better job? than just plain soap and water. Nothing beats plain soap and water. Hand sanitizers are very convenient. If someone had a choice between using a hand sanitizer and nothing at all, I would say a hand sanitizer is a good bet. You actually don't even need antibacterial soap, just plain soap and water. We teach kids to wash their hands while singing the song Happy Birthday or Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or their ABCs. And but going, an entire song. An entire song, soaping the whole time in between their fingers, maybe going even underneath their nails, and then fully rinsing. Um, that's the best way to protect yourself from disease. Well, I think that's fantastic advice, too. It would be wonderful if that was kind of a rule of thumb that everybody learned. Um, one quick thing. Do you, do you think that children's exposure to these kinds of diseases at an early age actually helps with their overall health and development? Nobody lives their life in a bubble. I think at some point, we're all together. Either it's a child that is going to daycare, a child that stayed home till kindergarten and entered kindergarten, or a child that was homeschooled and then enters the workforce when they're older. Um, and being around coughs and colds at some point helps us all build up a little bit of immunity. So you do, basically, once you're exposed to a particular viral situation, most likely you have an immune, a natural immunity that builds up, you'll be less likely to get it. Yeah, there are thousands of viruses out there, so we're never going to get them all. Um, but certainly being exposed helps. And that's the old adage, you know, moms don't get sick as much because they've had everybody sick around them. All right, just in the last minute or so, what do you recommend to parents 
who have younger children and older children, and the older children are bringing all the diseases home to the younger children. Is there, should you be doing something to protect them, or is it, once again, in their best interest to get these diseases? Modeling good behavior for your children is number one. Make sure you're always washing your hands after you go to the bathroom. You are washing your hands before you prepare food and eat blowing your nose in a tissue and throwing it away, teaching your kids to do the same. How about and coughing in your elbow? Coughing into your elbow is the next thing I was going to say. Making sure no one in your house shares cups, spoons, things like that. Wonderful help. Wonderful news. Wonderful information, I mean. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing all that. My guest has been Dr. Jacqueline Siskin. She's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital and at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's Healthlink on Air. Next, a visit with an expert with some views on the changing field of medicine today. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Dr. Zubin Damania is an internal medicine doctor, a medical satirist, and the founder and CEO of Turntable Health and ZDogMD.com. He was in Syracuse recently for the opening of the Upstate Mind, an initiative to generate innovation and ideas in both medicine and research. The Upstate Mind is led by Dr. Robert Corona, professor and chair of pathology and the vice president for innovation and business development at Upstate Medical University. Take a listen to Dr. Corona as he interviews Dr. Domania for HealthLink on Air. I'm Robert Corona. Today I get a real thrill to speak with Dr. Zubin Domania, known online as ZDogMD. Uh, I've seen his videos and totally enjoyed them, and they've gone epidemically viral, educating patients and healthcare providers while mercilessly satirizing our dysfunctional healthcare system. Uh, Dr. Demania has won teaching awards during his 10-year hospitalist career at Stanford, which I saw him in a video called Afghanistanford. And at the same time, he's maintained a shadow career performing stand-up comedy for medical audiences worldwide. In fact, we just had the pleasure of having him uh, sing his new video this morning uh, while we're recording this. He now lives in Vegas. He has a beautiful family, and he's made the leap from satire to actionable change by founding and implementing an innovative model of healthcare delivery that promotes wellness at both the individual and community level. And he's uh, named it after his passion for uh, music, uh, turntable health. He's going to tell us about his membership-based primary care ecosystem, which is part of an ambitious urban revitalization movement spearheaded by Zappos CEO, Tony Shea, right pronunciation. Welcome, Dr. Domenio, or Z-Dog. Uh, I have already had a total blast with him only spending the past half hour, and I hope this interview is as much fun as we've had in the past 30 minutes. Bob, I'm furious. I'm furious right now because you said I went viral, and uh, as a scientist, you know very well that it's retroviral. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. I'm, it's really a pleasure to be here, and I just got to give a shout-out. West Side! <laughs> I mean, or East Side. I guess East, East Side. It's cool. Well, you were born East Side, right? I was born East Side, Morristown, New Jersey. So upstate New York. In fact, 
my dad, uh, who is a primary care physician from India, which, by the way, that's basically synonymous, primary care, India, same thing. <laughs> he, uh, he was deciding, do we move to Goshen, New York, or do we move to Clovis, California? And he kind of flipped a coin, and we ended up in Clovis, but it was very possible that I would have been here in New York. So it was just barely missed the bullet there. So first I want to talk about growing up. What was your uh, childhood like? Why did you uh, develop such a great sense of humor? Well, do you remember the husky section at Mervyn's? Uh, because I do. Uh, so my mom's way, my mom's a psychiatrist, by the way. Her way of showing me love was to feed me, to stuff me full of food. So I, w I was ahead of the, You know what? Childhood obesity didn't really become a thing until like the 2000s. But I was way ahead of the curve in the 70s. I was obese. And so as a chubby little kid with a funny last name that's unpronounceable living in a rural part of California, I developed a sense of humor as a coping mechanism to put people at ease, to lubricate the sort of social situation so that instead of them be being the, the, the subject of attention that was bad, I was the subject of attention where people were laughing with me. So that was awesome. So it was that's where it kind of came about. See, I had an East Coast experience where I avoided the husky section of Sears and Roba. <laughs> and my mother used to say, well, you're, you're really a husky. And I'd say, I'm not a husky. And I'd try to stuff in my uh, orange corduroy pants. And <laughs> I had those. I had those. And you know, you know, the funny thing is my mom would go into Mervyn's and she would loudly ask, where's the husky section? Can someone tell me where the husky section is? And I was like, you know, like, I'm like, mom, come on. Okay. You're hiding behind yeah, I'm the hiding. clothes. That's right. The funny thing is now the husky section doesn't exist anymore. Neither does Mervyn's. It's just called small. Yeah. Because everything has just progressed to the point where BMI, I mean, it's a real tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you moved out to California. And uh, grew up there. Tell us a little bit about your education, the fun part of it, not the boring part. Oh, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> school is one of those things where when you, you're a little bit off, uh, you kind of bristle at most stuff in class. But it just so happened that I was good at school. So I was able to be kind of a you know, class clownish guy while still doing okay, which got me into you know, UC Berkeley and then UCSF Medical School somehow, even though I had imposter syndrome the entire time. <laughs> and in it was in UCSF where uh, I used to teach an MCAT class at Berkeley for a company called Berkeley Review. I think they're still working out there. And it was these two-hour blocks three times a day where I had to teach about general chemistry. And I didn't know ish about general chemistry, like nothing. And so to put myself at ease, I used humor and I started developing these sort of stand-up routines around like Le Chatelier's principle or like, hey, check it out. It's Boyle's Law, son. You know, and, and so it forced me by the fifth lecture, I, I had it dialed. I knew how to read the crowd. I knew how to make the jokes. And that has helped me then to do what I do now, which is a little variant of that, which is educate, entertain, kind of spread the word about what we're calling Health 3.0. So when you were a hospitalist and you were doing your medical gig, were you still doing the satire and the parodies and all that? Not, not, not for most of my career. In fact, for a good first six, seven years of my hospitalist career at Stanford, I was just straight up hospitalist. And all my energy and all my sort of creative juices were kind of subjugated to the daily grind of doing that. And, and I took a lot of it out in the teaching. So the house staff were the beneficiaries or subject subjects of the torture of having to have me as an attending, which was a nonstop stand-up comedy routine on the on rounds, which for better or for worse, I used to win teaching awards, I think because of that, not because I could teach. Uh, so, you know, it was a lot of fun. So then you said you felt like a zombie, right? And you wanted to get out of it. And so did you just resign, retire? Nah, you know, it was like 35, 36. I just had my daughter and I had this midlife crisis where, 
you know, people were asking me, are you happy in your life? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. What wait, 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 no, no, I am, I'm living someone else's life. Like the, you could tell that what was happening in my, in my job was the, what's happening, I think in medicine as a, as a whole, which is this transition through health 2.0, where we used to have autonomy. It used to be an art and a kind of a guild and an apprenticeship with its own problems, hierarchical, paternalistic, all of that. But now it was about clicking boxes in Epic, pleasing bean counters, productivity, macro MIPS, all this jazz, we went from being a partnership to being a corporation. The house staff started to peel back because of work hour limits. And so we were working a lot harder, but with no more support. And most of the time we were working to treat the computer, not the patient. So I started to get really burned out. And then as a cry for help in 2010, I realized, hey, YouTube's a thing, man. There's a gopher on there that like gets hella views. I'm at least as, as good as 20% of that gopher. So that's when I started making videos, putting them online. So did somebody see your video to get you on the TED Talk when you did a TED? Yeah, so uh, the videos became a thing. Uh, the guy from Zappos, Tony Shea, asked me to come to Vegas to see if we, I could actually put my complaints into action and do something with it instead of just you know complaining about how things were broken. And that got the attention of the TED Med people, and they were like, well, come and talk about uh, your journey. We don't want to hear about, you know, healthcare transformation and that we want to hear about your journey. And I'm like, oh, I can tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you about my journey, son. And that's when it kind of went crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have a passionate following. I'm, I'm getting emails to tell you, thank you for raising awareness for the, the plight of nurses and case managers and doctors. And uh, I, I think you're a real spokesperson who gets it. And uh, the, the young people coming through, like our medical students, for instance, today are so excited about interacting with you. Um, I just, the characters you do are hysterical. I mean, maybe tell, tell, tell us about Darth, or Doc Vader. Well, first, I want to say that all those messages you're getting are mostly coming from my parole officer. <laughs> he has multiple <laughs> guises and just wants to show that his, his, his you know, candidate is legit. Yeah, so, so Doc Vader, for example, was a character that we came up with when we knew the new Star Wars was coming out. And all of us were terrified it was going to suck, like the first three prequels. And uh, when it didn't suck, I was like, okay, okay, this is a thing. Doc Vader. He is the id of healthcare. He's like everything we want to say but can't. We want to say to our administrators. We want to say sometimes to ourselves and to our colleagues. And so he comes out and he's like, you know, every day I get these Prescani patient satisfaction surveys. And it's like the emperor put a lightsaber in my buttocks every <laughs> single day. And now we have an opioid epidemic because why? Oh, give him dilaudid so our scores go up. Well, now you've created an addict. Are you happy? In the buttocks every single day. And so that kind of thing went viral. <laughs> the next thing I knew, I'm, I'm doing more of Doc Vader, and he's ranting on everything from, you know, assisted suicide to vaccines. Yeah, the yeah. vaccine, uh, our pediatricians especially liked the help there. Well, you know, he's like, I'm more machine than man now. I can't be vaccinated. I'm wheezing now. Dr. Corona, I'm wheezing now. If I, your spawn go throughout the galaxy spreading measles, and I'm supposed to sit here and wheeze through it, it's unfair. Dark side, 2016, I'm out. Do you have new, uh, do you have any new characters forthcoming? So we're, uh, we're really uh, thinking about uh, frozen Han Solo and Carbonite being one of the characters. So he's a guy, he's either a doctor waiting on the phone to do a prior authorization with an insurance company and he's just frozen in carbonite or he's a patient waiting in a waiting room or he's, you know, a patient in the ICU and Doc Vader's having a conversation with his family about, you know, he's more machine than man now. Like we should 
think about making them comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So yeah. Well, you had a you had an interesting experience coming into Syracuse last night, and uh, your hotel room and your eating experience. Do you mind sharing that because? I laughed hysterically when I saw you uh, on Facebook. Well, you know, so I had flown in from Naples, Florida, which is a different climate, to say the least, where I'd given a talk there, and I'm on my, like, you know, East Coast world tour. And so I flew into Syracuse. It was beautiful looking at the colors and everything from the plane, beautiful weather, wonderful taxi driver. Get to the hotel. I'm placed into a closet that has – I only demand – Bob, I only demand two things in a hotel. I want Wi-Fi and I want coffee. They had neither. <laughs> neither was in the room. So I'm like, cool, I'm going to go – I'm going to Yelp the nearest coolest restaurant and you know the restaurant in the facility was okay but i was like i want korean food it's down the street so i walk down to this place it's a hole in the wall i go in through a door in the back because the front door which was all ornate and looked like it should be the entrance there was a big sign that says don't even dare opening this door go around the back you go around the back which is a fall risk because of these stairs and then this woman comes out and says sit down and it's two korean ladies staring across each other playing ipad games like battleship against each other <laughs> And I'm like, oh, cool. I see. I love weird food. I see snails on there. I want the snails. Basically, she tells in Korean, the other woman, she says, it, it, more or less, this is my translation through my universal translator, he can't handle snails. Like, white boy cannot handle snails. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. It's on right now. I want the snails. She's like, we don't have the snails. I'm like, fine. Give me whatever is the closest thing to the snails. So she comes out with a steaming, spicy pot of squid you know, with tentacles still coming out of the pancake, and it's great. it looks like the Sarlacc's pit in Return of the Jedi. And I eat the whole thing, every last bite. And at the end, she says, you know, we had the, the snails. We just didn't think you could handle it, but I think you could have handled it. And I'm like, oh, I almost, I mean, so that was my intro. By the way, best Korean food I've had in forever, and I grew up in the Bay Area of California, so you guys have it dialed. Chorong House here in, in town. Yeah, Beautiful. who would have thought that uh, you'd come to Syracuse for Korean food? It was dope. Now, when you come back, which I hope we can get you to come back, we'll get you the snails. And there's a place here that has faux cargo, which is vegetarian snails. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know what? If we're talking about conscious animals not suffering, a snail is at the top of my list to save. Like, forget yeah. the cows. They can't feel anything but a snail. Yeah. Expressive. Have you right. seen their eyes, Bob? I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the uh, conversation you had about mucus. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know... I forget what I was saying, but the snail, snail mucus snail mucus uh, was a thing I was hoping to sample, and instead I got uh, squid mucus, which is a different mucus. If you've ever, you know, if you're a connoisseur of mucus like I am, all right, you're a pathologist. Yes, you're right. a connoisseur. We of love mucus. mucus. You love mucus. Yeah. Anything that it's secreted, excreted, it's a beautiful goblet thing. cells. Okay, <laughs> and I'm going to drop the mic. If this were a mic, I could drop without causing thousands of dollars in damage. I would drop it right now. So tell me, what what did you say you had a butt something? from yesterday the experience of, of oh yeah i was butthurt butthurt yeah so butthurt is a term that's come up in the recent lexicon which means when you're emotionally damaged by some trigger so you know somebody hurts your feelings and you're butthurt you know and uh i was butthurt that i was racially profiled by this lovely korean woman as not being able to handle snails i'm like listen i'm of middle eastern extraction okay i will eat flaming coals <laughs> and I will and and I'll I'll poo out you know totally bland soft serve because my body will process it so give me the snails so that was the nature of my butt hurt um, although people interpreted it as I was going to have a hurt butt from the spicy squid which that's what I thought I can't yeah. I can't comment yeah on no that. comment this yeah. morning 
So we have a minute and a half. Mm. Tell me about what do you plan to do for the future? We're pretty excited about your upcoming video, but uh, other things that you plan. Yeah, so we're going to push this video, Hippies, about uh, mindfulness meditation <laughs> and alternative medicine. And we're going to go continue push this idea of health 3.0 that sort of transcends and includes the best aspects of everything in healthcare that's come before, the sacred autonomy of health 1.0 and the beautiful patient relationship that we have as caregivers with the technology of 2.0 and the process improvement of 2.0, but repersonalizing medicine. And that doesn't just mean you know genomics and all the stuff that we talk about in biotech, which is crucial, but repersonalizing it in terms of the analog relationship. So the reason I called our clinic turntable is because I believe the heart of medicine is analog. Right? It's about putting a record on, 10 tracks that tell a story that wash over you in this organic, warm feeling. What we get now is an MP3 zeros and ones blared into our ears like, you know, on a subway by ourselves with nobody. And we don't deserve that. We deserve to have an analog heart of medicine that's amplified by digital technology and make it really bump. So that's what I'm going to try to promote uh, as we move on. That's really cool. Are you going to do that? Do you think you're going to scale it out of Las Vegas? or So Vegas is one place. What happens in Vegas shouldn't stay in Vegas. But uh, our partners, Iora Health, are now all over the East Coast, and they're expanding this sort of model that we have. It's just one model. I want people to bring their own vision and join us on Facebook at ZDogMD because we're talking about it every day. Cool. Yeah. Well, we're really thrilled to have you in Syracuse. We're going to give you a full day and hope you leave here with a big smile on your face. And I want to thank you for coming. I got a smile on my face now, and we're going to go retroviral on this. And I want those snails, son. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Next up, a foolproof way to calculate your food portion sizes. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. So your fridge is stocked with wholesome ingredients and you printed out a whole book full of good-for-you recipes. But now you're faced with a new problem. How do you determine the perfect portion-controlled sizes for your healthy snacks and your meals? Well, here to help us figure all of this out is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian with Upstate Medical University. Hi, Maureen. Nice Hi, to Linda. see you. Nice always to see you. Always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And always welcoming all of your very, very good advice about this. I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what is it that we mean when we say portion and how is that different than the word serving? Okay. So a serving size is something you mentioned recipes. So when you do a recipe, they give you the serving size. They say this recipe makes four and the serving size is a half a cup. Or you look on a label and it says the serving size is two-thirds of a cup. Those are the serving sizes. Those are recommended amounts from companies or from a recipe, how it breaks down. The portion is how many of those serving sizes you have. So if you have a recipe that makes four half cups and you eat that whole recipe, that's your portion size. So that's where the difference comes in. Okay, so what you're saying is the portion size has to do with what you you select. You eat. That's you right. You take in. Mm -hmm. But the serving sizes are determined or kind of predetermined either by the company if it's on a label Correct. or by the recipe writer if it's... A, and But the, I'm curious as to where did those come from? In other words, how does someone determine 
what is a serving size? Is that is there some you know kind of um, agency somewhere <laughs> in in cyberspace that determines this well, is a, a serving? It's interesting that you say that because the new food labels that will be coming around in the next probably two years is going to take a while for the industry. Those are going to be more based on actual serving sizes. So a lot of food companies came up with those ideas in terms of what their serving size was. So again, like an example, a pint of ice cream, you know, it says the serving size is a half a cup. Well, we know that most people eat more than a half a cup. Now the new changes are going to be if most people eat a cup and a half or if they eat the whole half pint, that is going to be the serving size. Oh, so we're going to see alignment. some great changes in terms of that. If you have a 24-ounce bottle of soda, it's going to say this 24-ounce bottle of soda contains this, not this bottle of soda contains eight eight ounces and there's 2.5 servings in this so that the new labels are going to be very very helpful they're going to become more realistic so on some level it was i'm not saying this was done well i don't know was this done to kind of um fool the buyer so to speak or fool the consumer i don't know if it was done for that i think there had to be some type of standardization and i think we came somebody i don't actually know where but i think it's probably through the food industry came up with those standardizations and then from that evolved as what's people's selection and what their choices of it were. So that's the beauty of the new food labels is they actually looked at that and said, oh, we need to look at what realistic serving sizes. We need to look at what the people are eating. So somebody knows because that's where, again, the issue can be people don't look at the food label and say, oh, I'm eating this whole thing. I'm really getting 2.5 servings. I thought I was just getting a serving. And again, relating it to calories, fat, sodium, all that. All, all of the contents, All the basically. contents, right, right. And is it doubled, tripled? How many times is that serving size of that container that you're eating? I think that's a key, key point. And, and when do you think those will be available? Well, the law was passed, and again, they, they give them ample time. So, you know, again, um, I have tons of information about the food labels and what the changes are. I think they give the companies probably a year, year and a half. So we're probably, I'm hoping in the next couple of years we'll we're going to start to see that. Yeah, because again, you know, that from a manufacturing standpoint, they have to change their labels. They probably have to change a lot of things. So um, that's going to take some time. But eventually, I think they'll be great. It's, go- it's going to be great, but it's also it going to be shocking. It is going to be shocking. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be like, whoa, in the back of their mind, they probably knew 2, what they did. 2,400 calories? <laughs> yeah. That for I, this? For this pint of that's right. I- ice cream that I just ate? <laughs> great, great. So let's talk about how an individual, though, a consumer, can basically decide what are the tricks that one could use to estimate portion sizes that are, well, well, first of all, portion size, and and then let's talk about how many portions one should, you know, take in. Okay. So um, I think measuring is the first thing you were talking about. So how do people do this at home? It's just basic, get your measuring cups out, get your bowls, get your glasses. Look at, I mean, I know at home I have like five different types of glass sizes. And if I use one for milk and I've used the other one for juice or you're using it for if you do want a soda at home, find out what the measurement is. Is it an 8-ounce glass? Is it a 10-ounce glass? Is it a 12-ounce glass? Because glass sizes are deceiving. If you have a favorite bowl for your cereal, put your cereal in that bowl, measure it. Do I take a cup? Do I take two cups? We get so common, it's so common for us, and we just get so used to doing things, we don't think about our portions in terms of it. So it's a fun thing to do with kids. It can involve math skills. It's a great thing to do with grandkids. But it's actually kind of fun to do and say, what is the size of this little fruit juice glass? What is the size of this glass that I use? Am I using my coffee mug and I'm pouring milk in it? Well, how big is my coffee mug? 
Um, so that's an easy way to do it. All you need is some measuring cups. You know, so you, you can get them right, anywhere. Right. That's very. That's great ideas. And I know with Weight Watchers, and it has always been the case that they actually weigh things and all that. You're not even necessarily suggesting that, no. but you're talking about really knowing what your utensils and your, that's right. your receptacles, your food yeah. dishes and plates really hold. Teaspoons, tablespoons. Do you know what? You, how much dressing you put on a salad? Is it two tablespoons? Is it four? Measuring that out and thinking about, oh, this is about how much I use, and then measuring a tablespoon, putting it on your salad, and, oh, I, I use more than that. I probably use three times. It's all those little cues for yourself. What am I actually doing? Well, talking about cues, how about visually? I know that people have, I've seen that people have these kind of almost little tricks as to mm -hmm. how they can figure out what a portion size. Why don't you help us understand those? I love visual cues. I always use your hand. Your hand's always with you, and it's relative to your size. So a woman's fist, I always tell, is probably about a cup. So if it's a cup of pasta, a cup of rice, you've got an easy portion size. You can see if you take your fist and you kind of visually put it on your plate, well, is I having two cups of pasta or was I having three cups? Okay. Same thing for men. Their fists are bigger, but again, it's relative. How many fistfuls are they doing of, of a pasta or a starch? The palm of your hand can be an easy measurement in terms of for your protein servings. A palm of your hand is about a three-ounce portion. Um, a fingertip, that's about a teaspoon. How much am I using? The thumb, great one for those great holiday parties probably coming up soon, that's about an ounce of cheese. So we don't think about that. We go and take a little brick. We take another little piece. How many thumbfuls? That's about an ounce, okay? Wow. Easy, 100 calories with cheese. So those are easy things to do. Um, a cup, if, a warm, if your palm is cupped. Now, again, I could make it really big and cupped, but we're talking just that small size. Um, you know, two cups. Am I putting chips in that or am I putting them in a giant bowl in terms of it. But your hand's one of the best tools, I think. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered dietitian Maureen Franklin. We're talking about how to calculate healthy portions. So very briefly, let's go through. I'm just going to say, you know, what what is a medium potato generally? I mean, what, what would you visualize it as being? Uh, computer mouse is a great one to use. So this, I love that one. Okay. And everyone has probably knows what a computer mouse looks like. And how about a half a cup of cooked pasta? We say about a half of a baseball, okay? Or again, you can use a smaller fist, about half your fist you could use. How about a portion of the, either a pancake, a waffle, or a, loaf, a, a slice of bread? About the size of a CD is okay. an easy way to think of it. And how about a small muffin? A muffin about the size of a tennis ball. So oh, again, instead of those, <laughs> instead of those giant, giant ones. It, the other thing with muffins is look at what we used to cook as a cupcake or a muffin in a muffin tin. Those are a small size. They've tripled at least. So or people might call them a low-fat muffin, but it's a huge low-fat muffin. And as you said, a portion of cheese is about? About an ounce. Mm -hmm. Well, that's again, when you're using your thumb, it's an easy way to use it as a judge in terms of it. How about meat? Because meat and protein are ones that, that often come up, meat or chicken. That palm is, again, um, for a woman, usually it's probably about a three-ounce portion. You can use um, a checkbook, which kind of cracks me up because a lot of kids probably don't know what a checkbook is. Right. <laughs> no more. <laughs> a deck of cards is another easy one. But just using your palm as a relative factor, you know, so do I have that serving at lunch? And maybe it's a little bit bigger, so maybe it's in the four- to five-ounce portion at dinner time. But how much am I getting? Or is it my whole hand? Or am I using two of my hands and that's my meat portion? So then you know, like, whoa, a little high there. In terms How about of a it. portion of peanut butter? Peanut butter, you can say um, it's um, a golf ball is another one. Or, again, just um, like a your finger, again, measurement. But I like a golf ball because everyone can 
kind of visualize what a and golf ball. And how about fresh fruit? Fresh fruit baseball is a good good option. So when size. we're talking about all this, we're talking about a portion mm -hmm. of these things. Mm -hmm. But what we're not answering is how many portions of these things should we be eating in a given day? Okay. Okay. So what you're assume what you're implying with the portion size is per meal. This is what you would be wanting to shoot for a portion. For a, basically a portion of meat would be a deck of cards that's or the right. palm of your hand. Right. But how many per day? Right. And that's going to depend on your age, your activity, your lifestyle, um, where you are in terms of any medical situations. Um, one of the best ways to do that is there's tons of apps out there that you can actually put in, you know, your age, height, weight, what your goals are, if you want to lose weight, if you don't want to lose weight. The apps are wonderful. Um, the choosemyplate.gov has a super tracker, which I tend to love. I think it's a great free service for people. It will go in and It'll show you if you're a, if you're a teenager, if you're an adult, if you're an um, um, older person. It'll base it for you, and then it'll give you those serving sizes. And why I like that, it'll tell you so many proteins, so many fruits, so many vegetables, so many starches. It goes back to that basic looking at my plate and how does my plate look. It doesn't always have to be about the calories. It can be, wow, I need some vegetables. Okay, how many servings of those do I need a day? How many do I get in a day, truthfully? So those are, that's one of my favorite apps well, to use. We'll have a link. That's my choose my plate. Choosemyplate.gov. Choosemyplate.gov. That mm -hmm. sounds like a really good application. And then there's the super tracker is the one where you can actually go in and then it will help you look at, oh, here I am, here's me, age, height, activity, weight, and it gives you guidelines for that. You know, there's there's been so much discussion about oil and fat in terms of obviously trying to minimize it in our in our diet. What and yet there are so-called healthier fats mm -hmm. and ones that are not. So in terms of portion control, what, I mean, how do you make those decisions? Let's say if you're putting olive oil on something or you're putting vegetable oil in a pan to saute things, what do you, what do you recommend? Common thing that I find happens with clients that I work with because they, oh, I'm using olive oil or I'm using canola oil, healthy, more monounsaturates. It's great. I'm glad you're using good healthy oils, but I think you still need to be aware of the portions. So again, has anyone ever measured out what a tablespoon of oil looks like? Are we just taking the olive oil and pouring it in the pan? Or are we drizzling it on our salad? Or are we dunking it with our bread? Because we feel good because we're using a heart healthy. But how much of that am I using? It's like nuts. Nuts are great. But I tell people, a handful, not a canful. What are we doing <laughs> as far good. as portions? Because, again, our hand goes in. We have one. Whoop, have another. Portion those out. When we talk about portion, put them in a small little dish and say, "These are this is my nut snack. So going back to the oil for a second and oil and fats. So, you're, I mean, you said for the nuts what you do. But with a, do you use a teaspoon? I mean, if you don't have a teaspoon, how do you figure out... Is a teaspoon the right amount? Well, I think the good that's a good thing to start with to see, or a tablespoon. How much is an actual tablespoon? Teaspoon, people are going to say, well, that's too little because a teaspoon is like that thumb tip like we were talking about. But a tablespoon, how much of that do I use in just the processing of my foods? Do I use it for sautéing? Do I think I need a little more and I'm pouring a little more? Am I pouring another tablespoon of oil on that? That's, again, fat being the highest calorie source too. How helpful are the package contents I mean, is that, like we said before, is that basically throw you off because of the serving size? It can throw you off if you don't use the food label. I always tell people to look on the back. Don't go for the glitz on the front. Find out what that serving size is. 
how many portions, and then look at it. Remember, if it's telling you it's 2.5, then whatever that nutritional information is, you have to do that times 2.5. So there's one last point, and that is the portion distortion quiz. And what is that? Really oh, briefly. this is a wonderful quiz that I know that you're going to put the link on. It's a great quiz. You can go back and look what was 20 years ago, what was portion sizes, and what we are looking at now. And it's a great visual cue for people to say, whoa, yeah, I remember when that muffin looked that small, and now they're huge yeah. so it's a great great tool fun way, thing to do too. it's a way to wake you up and it we'll is. have a link on our website so bottom line best advice best advice if you're going to use a label use the label properly know what to look for plan portion out be aware and know what sizes and are what sizes, sizes. and right. find out what you're eating look at your plate Terrific. My guest has been Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian with Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. There's nothing like a good mystery story to hold our attention. Medical student Julian Grace Abad won the writing award here at Upstate last year for her story, Valerie's Secret. Here is an excerpt. Valerie's father told her, once she was old enough to understand the difference between secrets and lies, that between the two, secrets are the greater evil. The way he explained it at the time didn't make sense, but he was her father, so she took his word for it. And when he slid her off his knee, bent down, and offered her his crooked little finger, she reached up and gave him her own without a second thought. No secrets, she said. Her father laughed deep in his throat. Promise, he said. Promise, Valerie murmured and clenched the steering wheel to still her hands. What was that, said her father. He squinted at the temperature controls, his glasses halfway down his nose. Valerie batted his hand away and turned the heat up. Nothing, she said. A hazy green light bled through the fog. Valerie lurched forward, veered right, and swung onto the interstate while her father smiled at the lights of the medical school and the hospital, watching them fade into the frigid sky. Valerie coughed, harder than she had the night before, but not from the dust that floated through the air and settled snow-like on the leatherette seats. How's school, said her father absently. Lots of work, not enough sleep. Hmm. We're done with gross anatomy, thank goodness. Couldn't wait for that to be over. That bad, huh, said her father. Why, was it too gross for you? As he chuckled at his terrible joke, Valerie found herself smiling. She could never get tired of her father's laugh. Quick, easy, earthy, like he meant it every time. When he laughed, Valerie could almost pretend that everything was all right. Almost. He looked even smarter than last time. Crisp's shirt tucked neatly into well-ironed slacks, Smooth leather shoes, polished and gleaming like mirrors. He wasn't dressing up for her, was he? Of course I am, he always said. I'm going to be the father of a doctor, so I should look the part. But Valerie knew he was just getting old and a bit insecure. He didn't have to worry, though. His hair hadn't changed color yet, just a few specks of gray around the ears, like salt scattered on asphalt. Well, Valerie had a story for her father this Thanksgiving 
one that was sure to turn his hair the wrong shade of white. She'd kept this story to herself for three months already, gotten a second, third opinion, had more scans and tests than she wanted to remember. And every day, as she kept on waiting and working and waiting some more, she got just a little bit weaker and just a little bit closer to the end of her story. Five years wasn't a long time if you thought about it. She'd have to tell her father before the end of day. Valerie knew that. Even if she wanted to keep her secret, he'd notice the darkness under her eyes, the weight she'd lost, the cough that wouldn't go away. He'd ask, she'd tell him. And when she was finished, he wouldn't be laughing. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn about kids and exercise, plus how to prepare your family for emergencies, and the latest in hernias and their repair. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>